And as you're seated, would you please pray with me? Uh, Lord, we confessed it earlier, but I want to pray it again that you would speak to each of us and let your word abide with us until it is wrought in us your holy will. And Lord, that you would give us the grace this morning to not take the posture of interpreters of your word, but that instead you would give us the better gift of interpreting us by your word. So Lord, uh, have mercy on us, especially me. As I preach, you know my weakness, you know my sin, my wanderings. Uh, Lord, I just thank you that your Holy Spirit makes this word effectual, that you alone know the heart, that you are at work in it, and that it is your good pleasure to be at work in us to the end that Christ is formed, that uh, we receive grace from you and not only receive it, but dispense it to others for the glory of your name. Would you do that? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, a few years ago, I was talking with an academic friend of mine, and uh, he'd been sharing with me how he'd been laboring over this particular area of theology, um, which he was really struggling to uh, think about clearly, to write about clearly, to teach about clearly. And uh, I came to him, uh, saw him about a year later, and I, I asked him, I said, you know, have you managed to land on any answers with this uh, theological question you took? Up And he, he kind of looked at me a little bit indignant, and he said, answers? I haven't even come up with the right questions. And, you know, I kind of thought about that this week. It's Palm Sunday, of course. The traditional thing on Palm Sunday is to preach on Jesus' triumphal entry, where Jesus enters Jerusalem and is welcomed as its king who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, but we're breaking with that this morning, not looking so much at Jesus' entry into the city but instead, Jesus' entry into the agony, uh, the agony that culminates at the cross. And, and we are in strange territory. Uh, there, are, there are cosmic, divine workings going on. There are sp things that work spiritually and among people uh, that are hard to uh, wrap our minds around. Um, it's hard to land on answers and it's even, I think, difficult to know what questions to ask as we get into this. So, uh, Jesus' help. Well, it begins with Jesus and his disciples coming to the Mount of Olives. And uh, somewhere along the way, Jesus separates out Peter, James, and John from the rest of the disciples to go with him, to join him in praying at this place called Gethsemane, uh, which just means place of the oil press. In this little trio, uh, if, you've, if you've read the Bible at all, if you're at all familiar with it, ought to be familiar. These were, um, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the guys in the room. You know, you remember the Hamilton musical? The, they, they've been in the room where it happened. Uh, they were with Jesus when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. They witnessed that. Uh, they, they witnessed Jesus flanked by Moses and Elijah uh, and heard the voice of God say, this is my beloved son, uh, when they were present at the transfiguration. They've been through some stuff together, and those kinds of experiences among friends, companions, compadres, tend to forge bonds of brotherhood not easily broken, right? So it's wild as we get into this situation in Gethsemane, Gethsemane they are not really coming together, but there is a sense that things are falling apart. And the first indication of that comes when Mark describes Jesus' heart. 
uh, he characterizes the heart of Jesus as greatly troubled and distressed. Uh, Jesus says as much about his own soul when he tells these three men that my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. He is describing something like uh, the, deepest, the deepest anguish any human being could ever endure. It, it wouldn't be abusing the text to, to translate this something like, my soul is horrified within me. My soul is full of dread. I am astonished. And that, even though he has predicted all of the events that are now beginning to unfold, he is experiencing something that we have not seen yet in this gospel. He is going through something new. He's firmly placed in the events in which he is, he's firmly placed in the events he's predicted, but now he's seeing them himself for the first time, and he's horrified. It fills him with dread. It astonishes him. And yet, it doesn't undo him. It drives him to pray. Now, if you pray, you know, I, I don't know what might prompt you to prayer. I have to confess, for me, it's all too often something like desperate hope of trying to get God to pay attention to me with the further desperate hope of him letting me in on what's going on with his will in my life, right? Um, I mean, there's a reason we've labeled the most desperate play in football after a prayer, I think, because there's something in, in our common understanding of prayer that prayer is kind of this thing that, you know, um, you sort of hurl out there in the, in the hope that maybe God will pull it in and uh, all will be well. But, but Jesus doesn't come at prayer in that way. He comes at it from a completely different direction, not not as an act of desperation, but, but fundamentally as one of dependence. And all of this, again, is unfolding as he is crystal clear on the will of God. Four times already, Jesus has told his disciples about his arrest, his trial, his death. He knows that agony is coming. He knows that that's in front of him, and yet it doesn't steer him from prayer because, well, the outcome is predetermined. Instead, it causes him to steep in it. He doesn't turn to prayer like, well, all the other resources are exhausted. He actually turns to prayer as the resource. Now, the best way to make sense of this, I think, is by really paying some serious attention to the very first word Jesus prays in this prayer. And if you've been around Christians at all who pray, it's likely you'll hear them pray you know, to God the Father. And in fact, in Jesus' day, that was very common as well. But Jesus doesn't address God merely as his Father. He calls him Abba, Father. Uh, he dispenses with the formalities and he embraces the familial, praying not so much to Father, but to Daddy, right? His posture towards God is, is a relational posture. It is a deeply intimate posture, and that shapes everything that ensues in this prayer. I thought of a famous photograph as somewhat encapsulating this relational, intimate quality to Jesus' prayer. It's a picture of John Kennedy, President Kennedy, sitting at the resolute desk in the Oval Office. Of course, this is the seat of power. It is the center of power globally. It is the place where only the most important people can get in, where only the most powerful people can get in. He is in the picture attending to business, 
probably of geopolitical importance, but also in the picture, there are these two other people, these two little kids playing under the desk. These are his kids just playing. And it's kind of mind-boggling when you think about it, when you, when you consider the fact that anyone else hoping even to enter that room, to get into that place and be with that person, you know, those are the people who've got to have the right credentials and the clearances and bring business of presidential power level importance. And, and once you're there, accord the president all the respect and honor due his office. And then, you know, but then there's these two little people for whom the place of power has become a playroom. All because of the relationship, all because of the intimacy. So that this person who to everyone else on the planet is president of the United States, to them is daddy. That's the access, that's the intimacy, that's the freedom, and that is Jesus' relationship with God. And it's why he doesn't enter or begin with formalities, but he enters with an intimate familiarity, not even beginning his prayer with praise, but, or with petition, but with praise. An expression of love for the Father. He begins, again, even knowing his will, saying, Daddy, all things are possible for you. You see, it seems to me that intimacy in prayer fuels prayer that's got some imagination in it. And, and let me explain that. What I don't mean by imagination is just making stuff up. What, what I do mean by imagination is praying in such a way, anchored in an intimate relationship with God, that creates an, a, a sense of expansive possibility where you can say, all things are possible for you. Where, where I can say, I, I know your will, but still, all things are possible. Little kids are like this with their parents, right? I mean, I can remember when our kids were really little and, you know, a conversation might come up and say, well, what do you want to do today? And, and, and they might say something like, well, I want to go to Disneyland. You know, I, I want to drive a forklift. I want, to, I want to get in a fight with a lightsaber. And why is that? You know, little kids aren't hemmed in by all the formalities and the practicalities and all that stuff. There's an intimacy in their life, and there's, there's a sense, especially in those early days, and they come to be disappointed in this later, that everything is possible with their parents. And that intimacy fuels imagination. An imagination where they're just unafraid to ask for the whole world. It doesn't matter that Disneyland's a thousand miles away, or that for, driving a forklift would be a very bad idea, or that lightsabers don't even exist. Right? There's, there's imagination, there's possibility fueled by intimacy. And, and this, incidentally, is why so many prayers in the Bible don't really follow this sort of formal, controlled, deferential, polite script. It's why so many of them are filled with possibilities in one moment, and they're freighted with complaints in the next. You know, and why is that? It's because that's the way you talk when you um, know that asking too much, or saying the wrong thing, or being just a mess or crossing boundaries of what's right or wrong or un, unsinful, don't, don't put the relationship at risk because there's intimacy there. Because you know prayer isn't drafting, isn't, you know, the drafting of a formal request. It is getting under the desk of your daddy. 
That's how Jesus prays. And it, and it means that questioning God's will and purposes isn't the stuff of impertinence, it's the stuff of intimacy. An intimacy that frees him to, to press against and explore the boundaries of God's will and purposes and say, would it, you know, would it be possible? I know you've spoken, but, but let me ask again. That is how close relationships work. That's why you speak to your spouse differently than you do your mortgage broker. Because the healthiest relationships give you wide berth for the pushing and the appealing and the complaining and the failing because you're not performing. You're not proving yourself. You are each other's no matter what. So Jesus, again, kind of does the unthinkable when he asks the Father if there might be any other way for him than the way of the cross. Is it possible? Now, Jesus is facing imminent death, and, and let's be clear on that. And that, of course, would be grievous to anyone. But, but Jesus' experience in this is completely different, and, it, and that's important. And you get a sense of just how different it is when you contrast Jesus' story with some of the stories of famous great men who are facing death in the ancient world, right? Uh, there, there was Socrates who was condemned to die, uh, to drink hemlock, right, as a means of execution. And in that story, you know, Socrates is stoic and brave and, and you know, teaching his wisdom right up to his very last breath to his disciples while his disciples are completely falling apart. There's the story of the Jewish martyr Rabbi Akiva who, you know, the legend has it, went to his death impervious to pain. You know, quoting Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, the great confession of Israel, as he was tortured. You know, again, this is a story of a hero holding it together while everyone else is falling apart. And yet, here's Jesus, who has long been making his way to the cross, who has faced no small amount of trouble along the way in facing off against the devil and his demons in calming storms, in confronting death, in, in healing disease, in dealing with scandal, dealing with all kinds of trouble with complete steadfastness. And yet, in this moment, he is the furthest thing in the world from the hero bravely facing his demise while his followers fall, fall apart. It's, it's the exact opposite. He's coming apart while his disciples are sleeping. In fact, it's not overstating it to say that of all the stories in ancient literature of great people facing their deaths, this one is completely unique. There's nothing else like it. And, and let me just add, it is certainly not the kind of story that anyone would make up to market a new religious movement. You would, you would in fact, edit it out, making sure that no one knew this embarrassing fact about Jesus. And yet here it is. So what's going on here? Jesus is facing what no human being, not Socrates, not Rabbi Akiva, not Braveheart, has ever had to face, ever had to endure. Because he is facing something far more dreadful than physical torment and death. He is instead taking up what he identifies here in verse 36 as the cup. He's taking the cup. Now, what is the cup? The cup is referenced throughout the Bible, dozens of places, everywhere as emblematic 
of God's holy wrath against sin. That's what it is. A good example of this is Psalm 11, when King David prays that God would judge his enemies, raining coals on the wicked so that fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be what? A portion of their cup. The prophet Isaiah says that when God's people sinned against him, their judgment would be like what? Having drunk from God's cup of wrath, right down to the dregs so that they become stupefied from the experience. And and in this moment, Jesus is coming unraveled by the fact that he understands that his death is indelibly connected to the cup. Facing death means that he is appointed to be the one to drink up in his death, the full measure of God's wrath against sin. That's the horror. That is the dread. That's what no human being has ever had to face, and it is what is causing Jesus to fall apart. Now, I realize in explaining that, that I've described some deeply challenging concepts, not readily embraced. Judgment for sin. Judgment meted out by a God who has wrath. Jesus as the object of that wrath on the cross. Uh, This is controversial stuff, not just just outside of the church, but actually within it. Uh, A number of years ago, a a sizable Christian denomination uh, landed in the news because they were um, uh, producing a new hymnal and Uh, there was an effort to change a line in one of the hymns that they were going to include in their hymnal. The the hymn was Keith and Kristen Getty's In Christ Alone. And and what they were proposing was to change the line that goes like this. And on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They wanted to change that too. And on that cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Now, the writers of that song didn't allow it. And and you might even be thinking, well, that's an improvement. Ditch the wrath of God stuff, double down on the God of love stuff, right? But that would be to suppose that love and wrath have nothing to do with each other. And, And not only that, but they are always opposed to each other. And I think we have to ask the question, is it actually true that a God with no wrath equals a God who's full of love. And and hang in there with me on this, because I know we are drinking what Luther calls the strong wine of the gospel, okay? But hang hang in there. Let's just dip our toe in this for a minute. Isn't it true? Let me ask you, isn't it true that true love is not just a soft, fuzzy thing, but it's got some fire in it? Real love. Never more so than when you see the object of your affection being threatened. I came across a story back in 2014 that I think illustrates what I'm doing my best to explain here uh, pretty vividly. Uh, It's a story about a woman named Chelsea Camp who was uh, dog-sitting for a family friend. And Chelsea happened to have an infant, an infant child. And they were just sitting in the living room, child playing on the floor, and all of a sudden this dog attacks her baby viciously. And immediately and instinctively, Chelsea sprang up. She attacked the dog that had her child in its jaws by jumping on top of it, wrestling it to the ground, and biting off its ear. And once the dog had released her child, 
she proceeded to punch it in the throat, not from the outside, but by shoving her fist down the dog's throat, making sure that it would never go after her baby again. Incidentally, the dog is fine. The people are fine. But the question is, you know, what was going on there? Wrath with no love? Love with no wrath? Well, in fact, it was both. And the result was salvation for this child at great cost. The theologian H. Richard Niebuhr articulated the mistake we make when we oppose wrath and love in his book, The Kingdom of God in America, describing how we lose the gospel when we are determined to embrace what he says is a God without wrath who brought people without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of Christ without a cross. The, the order of that matters. Beginning with the insistence that a loving God could never have anything to do with wrath. That results in sinners being denied the redemptive work of Jesus who does what? Takes up the cup. The cup of wrath for us as he goes to the cross. There's fire in this love. So that people like you and me would not be torn to shreds by the sin that would destroy us. So Jesus is very clear on this dreadful reality that he's been appointed to take up this cup of God's holy and just wrath towards sin. Wrath he'll take upon himself for the salvation of people who could never endure such a thing, apart from whom would be torn to shreds. And he does so as one willingly enduring a rift in the Trinity, stepping into the place of those condemned by sin in his own innocence, bearing the full consequences of it for them, allowing it to tear him to shreds so that his people would be saved. The dread of that is cohering in this moment, and it is why, as he turns to his father, his daddy, in prayer as he always has, this time there is no, this is my son whom I love. There is no, dove descending on him. There are no ministering angels coming to comfort him. There's not even a supportive friend. There is separation because there is substitution. Because Jesus steps into the place of condemnation that should have fallen on us. So that Abba Father doesn't turn toward his son with comfort, but instead with the cup. And, and it's, it's impossible to adequately describe the excruciating intensity of this, of the silence of the Father, of the certainty of his will, the intensity of the temptation that must have been bearing down on Jesus to act on his own will, doing whatever it would, whatever he could not to take that cup. We, we get some sense of it as Jesus prays not once but twice, asking that he wouldn't have to take it. But in the end... He is obedient where we are failed. Where he says, not what I will, but what you will. Amazingly, even as Jesus is enduring this and going all through this, he, is not, he, he continues to go after his disciples. Um, 
he remains a good shepherd unto the end. And before praying, he he actually gives his disciples a command. He says, remain here and watch. Um, And it's a command delivered with some force, and it's it's not even a new command. Uh, he, He told them pretty much the same thing right before their Passover meal. Uh, back in chapter 13, where he tells them, be on guard and keep awake. It's basically the same thing. Remain here and watch, be on guard, keep awake. It's, it's a command that's so important, he not only re, uh, repeats it, but, he, but back in chapter 13, he bolstered it with a, with a parable. He explained that, that they should be like doorkeepers at a great estate, and that, that they ought to be attending to the business of the Lord of that estate, because he, he might show up at any time. You know, and when you're a doorkeeper like that, the worst thing you could do is fall asleep. Bare minimum is staying awake. And yet, the first time he comes to them after he prays, he finds them doing just that, violating the command, uh, discarding the teaching he gave them in the parable. And instead of, the first time, instead of waking them all, he, he singles out Peter, only he doesn't call him Peter. Uh, in fact, this is the first time in the gospel since giving him the name Peter that he doesn't call him Peter. He calls him instead Simon. There's, he gives him, he, 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 there's nothing rock-like about him. He's back to Simon. But he still tells him, watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. He goes off to pray again. He comes back again, finding them all asleep a second time. And and this time, we don't actually know what he said, but we find out a lot about their sleep, that their eyes were heavy, that they didn't know how to answer him. What's being described here uh, isn't sleepiness. It's something more like stupor. It's senselessness. It's it's also quite significant because the way they're described is, is very similar to the way that idols are described and people who worship idols are described. Like, They've got eyes, but they don't see. They've got ears, but they don't hear. They've got mouths, but they can't speak. They are senseless, spiritually lifeless. And then comes the third and final time Jesus finds them sleeping. And this time it merits something of a rebuke. Are you still sleeping and resting? Hard to overstate how painful this is. Certainly in our most trying times, we need our people with us at a bare minimum. And the pain of this is amplified by the fact that he's already told them not only that this hour would come, but he's told them that one of you is going to betray me, and and Peter, you're going to deny me three times, and the rest of you are going to fall away, and none of that information puts even a little bit of steel in anybody's spine. They are dumbfounded and dumbstruck. When you get to verse 41, it seems as if Jesus has had enough. In fact, that's exactly what he says, enough. Except the word he uses here isn't one of agitation. Weirdly, it's, it's a word associated with accounting, meaning something like paid in full, account closed. What does that mean? Well, it, I think it means that the critical hour has come, that Jesus has faced the dread and endured, and that time wasted by his people has been paid in full by Jesus. He's been the faithful doorkeeper of his father's estate among a bunch of failed doorkeepers. He's the only one who's remained watchful for the arrival of the Lord and the doing of his will. And then 
After having said, paid in full, account closed, the last words Jesus speaks directly to his disciples in this gospel are uttered, and he just says, rise, let's go. These, again, are striking words in that they are almost identical. These last words that Jesus speaks are nearly identical to the first words he ever spoke to his disciples. The words being, come and follow me. Rise, let's go. Come follow me. I'm, I'm, your, I'm your shepherd. You're still my sheep. I'm your, I'm your Lord. You're my disciples. And they respond to this reissued call to discipleship, not with steadfast faith, faithfulness, but with spectacular failure. They do rise, and they do go, but they don't follow Jesus. They fall away from Jesus. They fracture among themselves. They scatter, each one going their own way, away from the Savior, headlong into a last-ditch effort to save themselves. And and with Jesus' words really still hanging in the air, Judas shows up, leading a mob armed to the teeth as if Jesus were a terrorist to be taken down. They show up with weapons. They show up with a plan that will be carried out uh, by Judas in which he greets Jesus with a kiss. Now, to be clear, this isn't to identify the one, you know, this isn't so they'll know who to arrest. Uh, Everyone knows who Jesus is. He, He says as much to them when he says, you know, day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you didn't seize me. No, the the plan here is to get Jesus with his guard down. Uh, Nothing accomplishes that, the thinking goes, better than the traditional greeting of deference, of embrace, and this kiss. And and by by all indications, Judas made a real show of it. The the language uh, used to describe this kiss is nearly identical to the language of the father welcoming home the prodigal in in the parable of the prodigal son. And Mark doesn't really record any response from Jesus, only that at that moment he sees and chaos ensues. Hands are laid on Jesus. There's a, t- there's a huge tussle. Swords are drawn and ears cut off. And then Jesus speaks again and says something like, am I such a threat to you that you come to me with swords and clubs? The chaos finally comes to an end with the words of Jesus when he says, and this is significant, let the scriptures be fulfilled. And with that, everyone scatters. And I mean everyone. Verse verse 50 says, they all left him and fled. And I I, I spent a little bit of time staring at that verse this week because it sounded weird to me. Um, I just thought, well, that's a funny way to put it. They all left him and fled. Sounds something like they all left him and they all left him. Sounds redundant, doesn't it? Except I think what's being described here are disciples who had already turned on Jesus before they took off from Jesus. Before running away from Jesus, they'd already already refused him. The whole terrible episode ends with this bizarre little account in verse 51 and 52, and it's an account unique to Mark. It's not in any of the other Gospels. In this Chaos, an anonymous young man, identified only as a young follower of Jesus, uh, who had nothing but the clothes on his back, and Jesus. And like everyone else, you know, when the chaos ensues, he too runs away. He's grabbed by someone, uh, but manages to wriggle free in such a way that they get a hold of his clothes, but not him. So he runs away naked into the dark. 
And there's a lot of theories as to why Mark included this, what it means. Some people think it's like a, you know, Mark is doing what Stan Lee did in all the Avenger movies, you know, where he kind of puts himself in a little bit of a humiliating cameo, that this was in fact a story about him and his failure. Some say it's the fulfillment of prophecy. Some zero in on the man's linen garment as kind of a foreshadowing of the linen garment Jesus will leave behind. Some say there's reference to baptism, you know, uh, in, the, in those early days of the church where you would shed your garments before you're baptized. But, but it seems to me that the, maybe the best interpretation is just obvious. That, that this event, either as carried out by Mark himself or witnessed by Mark, was something like a great example of where your self-salvation will take you. That, that just like this young man, you know, we're all in for Jesus one moment. Just Jesus in the clothes on my back. Only to come unraveled in an every man for himself desperate move in the next. Showing our, you know, faithfulness for what it really is. Showing how in our own resolve, we are left in the end naked, afraid, isolated, running away. Because none of us are able to take up the cup or to drink the cup that Jesus takes for us. None of us are able to remain and watch. None of us are able to endure the return of the Master, the day of the Lord, to, to rise and follow our Lord, to defend Him, to, or certainly even as Peter boasted not long before this, to die for Him. You see, our faithfulness is shown for what it is. It falls apart. But Jesus' never falters. So, so that in our fear, and in our fleeing, and in our failure, faithfulness remains. Not, not in us, but in Jesus. The sin that should have taken us into its jaws and mangled us is taken by him. He's seized. He's stripped. He endures a humiliation and a hell that should have fallen to us by taking on himself the verdict of sin. And he doesn't wriggle out of it. But fearsomely and faithfully, carries out the plan of God for salvation by taking up the cup of wrath towards sin that should have been ours, drinking it right down to the dregs so that not a drop of that wrath is left to us, but we instead receive oceans of grace because of our Savior. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, um, Yeah, it's hard to uh, come up with the language. And perhaps it just suffices to say thank you. We thank you for, Lord Jesus, being faithful where we are failed. We thank you for fulfilling God's plan. We thank you for enduring the dread and the horror. And for emerging as the one who takes the cup so that we might receive life. Lord, we're doing that at this table. Uh, we're going to eat bread and drink from the cup. And would we do that as those who know that we can eat the bread of grace because you have eaten the bread of affliction? We, we can 
drink from this cup of grace because you have drunk from the cup of wrath towards sin, which should have fallen to us. Lord, thank you for this immense, immeasurable gift. Would we, for those of us who know you, Lord, would we, um, again, uh, take this up as good news and forgive us for diminishing it, for taking it for granted. And Lord, for those of us who are here sort of contemplating these things, wondering about the truth of these things, Lord, would you, um, would today be the day of salvation? Uh, would we all know that uh, we cannot make a life for ourselves, but Jesus, you are gracious to give us life and life abundant. So feed us at this table. Thank you for your word and your grace. Thank you for such a great Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.